I'm Mark Lentz, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today is Curtis Ryan of Appalachian State University and the author of a brand new book, Jordan and the Arab Uprisings, Regime Survival and Politics Beyond the State. Now, Curtis, uh, welcome to POMEPS. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about this book. What, what were you trying to accomplish with the book, and what do you think the major contribution of this book is? Well, originally the idea was to just look at Jordan during the Arab Spring and um, see what the Arab Spring meant in a Jordanian context and how Jordan navigated the Arab Spring, but it actually ended up becoming much more than that. I, I think the book would have been done in 2014, which was the original intent, and just be a, a, a book about that period. And I ended up, because it got so complicated, uh, I ended up broadening the scope of the book of what it would cover in domestic politics and even regional politics to deal with uh, the, the really before, during, and after the Arab Spring, to write a book that would be more thematic and analytical, um, and that would still be relevant even in the context of, say, the June protests or current debates over new tax laws and things like that. Um, but it would put it in a, in a context. So the, the scope ended up being, yes, it includes the Arab Spring, what happened at that moment. Um, but it also topically ended up dealing with themes that have been important in Jordanian politics really throughout modern Jordanian history and still are. So they also post-date the Arab Spring. Things like reform, like electoral struggles, like regional insecurity issues, like identity politics. Um, and, and struggles over reform and change, political and economic, and taking that, what was the setting before the uprisings, what happened during the uprisings, and where are we really now after the uprisings on every single one of those themes? Well, let's start during the uprisings themselves. Uh, you know, many people would look at Jordan and they would say, this is one of those cases where nothing much happened. Mm -hmm. And I think your book pretty clearly shows that that's not right. Tell us, you know, what, what happened in Jordan as the protests are breaking out around the Arab world and um, what's going on in Jordan? In the Jordanian context, I mean, I think some of the protests actually predate um, the, the first protests in Tunisia. I mean, because we, we always look at, and for, for good reason, we look at what happened in Tunisia since it was such a shock that it, that it seemed to have started there. Um, and then obviously, the if that was the pebble in the pond, then the boulder thrown into the pond was, of course, Egypt. But Jordanians were already out protesting, and it was over a specific government, um, and largely over, there were economic drivers, but I would say even more so political. It was anti-corruption protests organized by a set of political parties and groups um, that got broader, got more intense as they went along, and then I think were inspired by the this idea that actually there's something regional going on here. It's not just this small collection of one-day, one-off protesters in Jordan, um, and they, they got their wish initially. Uh, the government was ousted, um, and a, a new cabinet put in that didn't change the universe or, or change uh, everything completely dramatically, but they nonetheless felt, I think, the flush of a certain amount of success, and then were also inspired by what was going on all over the region. And that, I would say, changed the complexity and the complexion of the protests, because they also moved into whole groups of other people. And, and Jordan, like its counterparts throughout the world, started seeing protests of young people, of uh, legions of very progressive and liberal and secular young people um, using various forms of tech and social media to organize themselves. And in the Jordanian context, I think that was important because it added a, a, or, or re-energized a whole new layer. This was not the usual suspects of protesters. This wasn't 
the local branch of the Muslim Brotherhood or a, a particular leftist party, this added a different layer. So in, so in terms of like the Jordanian uh, experience of political protests and political mobilization, how different was this series of protests that you see after January, February 2011? I mean, was it really just more of the same or was this really something qualitatively new for Jordanian politics? Well, I think it's not entirely new, no, uh, in the sense that, and I think people like um, Julian Schwedler have done absolutely fabulous work on how how, in, how deep uh, the history of protest is in, in Jordan. And the obvious ones that always come, come to mind are, are the colossal protests of, of April 1989 um, that were more, at least originally economic austerity driven, uh, bread riots, things like that, that then turned very quickly into political critiques and complaints about corruption and mismanagement. So I think there's, there's a longer trajectory there but what was really striking about, say, December December 2010 to January, February 2011, is that the protests suddenly became nationwide events. They weren't a week long or a day long or even a month long. They were going um, to the point that, like clockwork, every at least every Friday for at least two years, uh, we saw protests not only in Amman, not just in the capital, but all over the country. And new organizations form, youth-driven organizations in particular, like the Herak, these movements, of which there were lo many, many local versions, um, that had complicated agendas and lots of issues they wanted to deal with. Um, and that, I think that was the jarring part for at least um, many people in the state, was the sheer vast scope of them, and even the makeup of who was actually protesting, that this it wasn't, I, I said usual suspects before, that this wasn't the usual suspect stuff. This was uh, hardcore elements that are supposedly bedrock foundations for the regime itself were up in arms, or very often facing off with relatives who were in the police who were in charge of making sure that this doesn't get out of hand. But this is a dynamic from north to south, east to west, across the country. Well, so if you look at some of the, the archetypical uh, Arab Spring cases, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, Yemen, you know, the unifying theme is that people want the overthrow of the regime. And the, the single thing that, that the protesters could agree on was they wanted to get rid of the leader, whether it's Mubarak or Ali Abdullah Saleh or, or Ben Ali. That's not quite the case in Jordan, right? They're, they're not going out there calling for the overthrow of the Hashemite monarchy. So what are they calling for? Yeah, I, I would say there are some, some exceptions because you're correct that for the most part, uh, and then the chants where they had the same rhythm <laughs> to them, the same style, but it was very often people want the reform of the regime or they want the overthrow of the government, but they wouldn't say of the whole system um, and, so, and not the monarchy necessarily, for example. And there are definitely people who crossed what people in the country just re routinely now, and the regime, regime routinely refers to now as red lines, right? Um, but we're crossing red lines right and left. I wouldn't say it was the majority of people, but we did see people were much more harshly critical of the monarchy or calling out the king or queen by name and so on. But they were really outnumbered by vast numbers of protesters and organizations who wanted to keep it, uh, kind of keep their cool, I guess I would say, in a, a little bit because they thought they might be more effective this way. They did want governments out. They want certain prime ministers they targeted. Um, they wanted policies to change. Um, but they weren't necessarily talking about the overthrow of the system. And I would say that uh, initial... Uh, self-restraint on the part of a lot of protesters actually increased over time because once we passed the 2012-2013 mark, the whole dynamic, especially circa 2014 and after, becomes 
is is tempered in a way by massive numbers of refugees who have flown into the country now by this regional insecurity spiral, by the rise of Daesh or ISIS in both Iraq and Syria, um, Jordan being part of that that coalition bombing them, among other things. And it really, I think that the turmoil across the border, especially in Syria, uh, tempered both state and opposition to some extent of how they were going to react to this, that there were certain maybe scripts uh, that they were trying to follow to keep things within particular parameters, allowing the protest to continue, um, but uh, both protesters and police trying to at least keep things under control so there weren't incidents of the level of violence we saw, certainly, for example, in Egypt. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So, yeah. in terms of how the Syrian conflict affected Jordan and how Jordan tried to engage with Syria, I mean, how how, how did you see this unfolding over the years with all these refugees and with ISIS and with the fear of of instability? How did Jordan manage? All yeah, that, of that? that's a great question because it was really complicated. And I would say at first it was really reactive, which led to policies that at times appeared to be contradictory, uh, in part, not just because of Jordan or Jordanian policy, but because of Jordan's complicated alliance structure, where at least in the early years of the Syrian war, it looked like its Western allies wanted it um, to do more, uh, get more directly engaged, and uh, many Jordanians wanted it to do considerably less. Uh, they uh, Jordanians were deeply divided on whether or not Jordan should intervene at all, and if it did, more importantly, if it did, on which side. So we saw a sort of split between secular left elements, especially, uh, say, traditional opposition, secular left elements, arguing for the supporting the Assad regime what's the, what, against what they saw as Islamist militancy, and the large Muslim Brotherhood contingent in, in the kingdom, arguing that Jordan should intervene on the other side against what they saw as this apostate regime that really needed to go, and it was long overdue, um, and both sides being dissatisfied with Jordan basically trying to just roll through this and not be dragged into it by its allies being pushed really in one direction, I would say, by, say, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, who themselves were in their own rivalry, and then the United States, the European Union, it even is like, connected to NATO. Um, I, th I think Jordanians really felt like they were, meaning the government, felt like they were being pushed and pulled in multiple different directions, so they were simultaneously allowing, at some points, arms and funding through the Gulf states to come, and one way or another, get to particular vetted re rebel groups allowing training by the U.S., CIA, Pentagon, uh, of, again, particular vetted rebel groups uh, in Syria, all really in an in a effort to try to avoid getting dragged into the war, even though that's clearly being involved in a way. And yet Jordan never broke diplomatic relations with Syria. It maintains there's still a Syrian embassy, heavily guarded Syrian embassy in Jordan because of the protests outside that embassy. Uh, but it, it tried to maintain, and even now, as complicated as that's gotten, it tries to maintain a relationship with the Syrian government, with the United States, with Saudi Arabia, and with Russia, uh, quite extensively, all simultaneously. Let's um, go back a little bit to what you were talking to the, to the Arab uprisings and the government response. Um, you mentioned that uh, that they got rid of the unpopular prime minister and tried to meet some of the demands of the protesters. But we all know that prime ministers in Jordan, they come and they go, and that doesn't really change very much. On the state side, what do you think has changed uh, over the course of the Arab uprisings? You, you talked a bit about how society had changed. What about on the side of the state? Yeah, I, I would say there's been, and, and part of the, the, the main themes of the book it, it itself are 
to kind of get around, I would say, um, the things we tend to focus on. And again, I think understandably we focus on where things are, are the brightest flashes, you know, revolution, counter-revolution, um, and coups and, and insurgencies and so on. But what about this kind of middle case where there's a tremendous amount going on, but there is no coup, there is no revolution, there is no insurgency. Things somehow continue or at least survive, if not prosper. Um, but in this case, I'd say, because the emphasis in the entire book is about continuity and change in every category. What's about the same? What are the minor, the small things that actually matter in terms of change? And I would say the state changed less um, than the social response. The social response, sorry, social response was much more eclectic and diverse and kept changing, and I think still is changing. Even recent protests looked completely different from the earlier rounds of protests. We keep seeing this evolution and expansion. The state, I would say, did respond with um, various reform efforts, and but from the top down largely. And so some of that looks new, right? New reforms. We change the electoral laws. We change the party laws. We add a lot of amendments to the Constitution. Um, but the parts that sound familiar, it sound like not a lot of change to, to a lot of Jordanian activists, is that's been the response to most crises, that we get a new prime minister, a new government. It has a letter of designation. It involves finally implementing reforms. And if it doesn't succeed, it gets ousted. And, and we kind of do this again. So there is a sense sometimes of a movie that's repeating itself. Um, but we do get sometimes governments that push for just a little bit more than they were expected to. Um, unfortunately, one of them was only six months uh, long, and actually we saw five governments in less than two years in Jordan at the height of the Arab Spring, so it was quite the um, turnover, uh, uh, turnstile, really, of, of prime ministers. But Aoun Kassauna was put in for six months uh, as prime minister. Many people were surprised because he, he wasn't the usual... Um, um, version of a prime minister. He didn't fit the stereotype. He was not even a politician. He was a, he was a jurist. Uh, he was a judge. He had a reputation for honesty and got very quickly really frustrated and had a real uh, fencing match with the government, with the intelligence services, and ended up resigning in protest. And oddly enough, while he was out of the country, um, and I think in some ways we're at one of those moments now where we have a prime minister who isn't from um, central casting of, of Jordanian prime ministers, comes from a more pro-reform, even progressive background, but is up against quite a lot. And so I'm not sure if this is, I don't think this is Kassauna part two, um, where he's just, it's a brief interim and we go back to another anti-reform conservative. But nonetheless, I don't think the prime minister is, has the power um, to completely transform Jordan, certainly not overnight. Um, and patience might be required by both from from both the monarchy and the street uh, in terms of what's actually possible and plausible. So will you go back and talk about that street then? You know, the two things you've mentioned that we might want to talk about a little bit more. One is this uh, traditional notion that the Muslim Brotherhood is at the core of the opposition. Right. And then the other is this traditional notion that the tribes of the South are the bedrock support of the regime. And you know, the book documents throughout that those have both changed in some interesting and important ways. Let's talk about each of those. Uh, so the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamism, where does that fit into what Jordan has become or is becoming? Yeah, I would say in the, in the really big picture, you know, chronologically speaking, uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood has in recent decades been the largest and best organized opposition force 
in the kingdom. It is, the Islamist movement is, is quite large. Um, and there are different versions. The, the Salafi movement has been steadily increasing over time. Um, there are, there's a whole strain of what has been called independent Islamism, I would say, since at least the 80s, of people who don't like to be affiliated with any of these movements. Uh, sometimes they see themselves as centrist, but sometimes not. But nonetheless, the Brotherhood is big, it's organized, it's tended to win elections across Jordan's many professional associations and so on, and, and has its own political party, the Islamic Action Front. So they've been uh, the core largest group. And during the height of the Arab Spring, if demonstrations had enormous numbers of participants, it was always when the Brotherhood participated and they brought out their rank and file. And when they were small, it was usually because they were boycotting that particular protest and they weren't bringing out the numbers. Um, but they nonetheless are in a very different position right now. I would say just as the opposition split in many ways over the Syrian war, uh, the Brotherhood split or has, has been split in some ways with state efforts in this direction um, to two different Muslim Brotherhoods. We have an officially recognized licensed version that is smaller, um, that is more moderate, I would say, and very heavily East Jordanian in its makeup and a much larger group that sees itself as the original group that no longer has a license, uh, that is sometimes censured by the state, that feels itself increasingly sidelined, that is more heavily uh, Palestinian-Jordanian, not exclusively, but largely, and wants to maintain ties to other versions of the Muslim Brotherhood outside Jordan itself, whereas the other, the first one wants to be more of a national Jordan-only version without ambitions for something else. So. Uh, I would say a lot of those activists, though, a lot of people I talked to were, were pretty explicit that they thought they knew their, their movement had split um, and therefore their but they thought it had been a clever uh, divide and rule strategy, that it had been split by efforts of, of people in the Jordanian security services and Muhammad or intelligence services, in addition to their own ideological divisions. But now it's, it's still large, but it is a divided movement in multiple different ways. And how about the, the tribes in the south? Uh, it, it seems like whenever there are protests now, they seem to emerge from the south. At what point do we revise our thinking about the relationship between the southern tribes and the regime? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because um, uh, even you know, Jordanians talk about uh, cities like Tafila and uh, Ma'an as, as always rested <laughs> as, as the heart beat of, of a lot of these key protests, a lot of the anti-austerity measures uh, we've seen, um, uh, protests and, 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 and more uh, as well. And, and they still are. I mean, they, they're, they're areas that see themselves as socially, economically, and to some extent politically sidelined, and, and there is an edge to this. But interestingly, this, is, this does go back pretty far. I mean, the, the, the grand protests, the past ones of, the, of 1989, um, they were so extensive, some people who participated in them still refer to them as the Jordanian Intifada. Uh, those started as a, a that movement. And in 2011, when these started, and these Iraq movements emerged, of usually of young tribal East Jordanians for, of, from different tribes in the South and different locations in the South, um, they saw it, they were talking about it at least in 2011 as a Southern revival movement. You know, the, the, the Jordanian version of the South will rise again, which is a rather different version than the U.S., but nonetheless... It's, it has that, that tribal roots, and so it's, it's completely different from this, this really outdated notion that, um, that, say, East Jordanians all support the state and the, the, the opposition is all Palestinian or something like that. Um, while identity policy does matter uh, in the kingdom, not the way people usually think. I think it's sometimes weaponized and used by reactionary elements to divide people, but... Even these movements who know their identity, they, they, they know where they're from, they feel their roots, they're proud of them, 
I would say what was really striking to me, especially as we move along, because I think they got better at it as they went along, is how conscious they have been to try to avoid those kind of binary divide and rule politics of not letting it turn into a Palestinian versus Jordanian thing or North versus, and even North versus South, even tribe versus tribe uh, type of issue. Um, and in, in just a few months ago, there were versions of this that were in fact sent out on social media of saying, don't let uh, everything from soccer team affiliations, you know, that are, that are known for being nationalist or not, um, to tribe, to region, to ethnicity, be dividers. That this is coming at you, um, so to be aware, you know it's coming, but don't fall for it. Speaking of things that you know are coming, um, let's have this one last question, which is about the inevitable, inexorable return of the Jordan option uh, to the peace process, um, and uh, you know the, the the ideas about a Jordan-Palestine confederation that have been floated in the press recently. You wrote a very nice piece for the Washington Post, Monkey Cage, about this. Explain just very briefly how those ideas resonate inside of Jordan and why this is such a uh, such a controversial proposal uh, from a Jordanian perspective. Right, and, and that's actually as, as much disagreement, and the book tries to document um, in, in detail disagreements among Jordanians, I would, and I would say re document them respectfully, meaning um, that there are so many things Jordanians argue about and debate about that I've tried in the book to A, include their voices at every opportunity, meaning quote them directly, say what Jordanians are saying to each other, um, who disagree vigorously with each other on a countless different issues. And yet this is one where we see a tremendous amount of unanimity um, for all the things there are to argue about, um, from the Syrian war to reform or lack of reform uh, issues of austerity or what to do about tax laws. There's so much more unanimity over this issue of people from all walks of life saying this is one of those things that just keeps coming back. The Jordan option or the idea that Jordan would be and this is what I think it really comes down to is, is Jordan going to be the alternative homeland for Palestinians or for a right-wing ultra-nationalist in Jordan who will say they're over their dead bodies, will that happen? Um, and people point to them because they'll be quite vocal about it. Um, but Jordanians of all walks of life, Jordanians who are, who are Palestinian Jordanians in terms of their personal heritage also recognize this as a ludicrous idea because they see it as solving, in quotation marks, the entire issue at Jordanian expense as... Um, Take, not as the next step towards Palestinian statehood, but as a step that's meant to replace Palestinian statehood. The Palestinians, Jordanians of any background um, are opposed to because they see it as killing the option of a Palestinian state and also violating Jordanian sovereignty and independence at the same time. So it's actually sometimes hard to find things that, in quotes, everybody actually agrees on, uh, left to right, top to bottom, secular to religious, but this would be one of those things, that it's a thing that foreigners uh, come up with and people from the far right in Israeli politics repeatedly over the decades. And we seem to be in one of those moments where we're resurrecting yet another very, very bad idea. But Jordanians at least agree on that. It's a bad idea. All right. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Curtis Ryan of Appalachian State University. Uh, we're talking about his new book, uh, Jordan and the Arab Uprisings. Uh, Kurt, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.